Hello, this is The Quarantini coming to you from Bristol, UK, and I'm Pommy Harmer. I'm Melissa Shimam, and as Pommy said, this is The Quarantini Podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you a mix of ingenious responses to the virus, creative ideas for the future, an in-depth interview, and maybe a dash of the unexpected. First, I'll give a big thank you to Seb Gutierrez and the Old Bones Collective for sharing the, their music with us since the beginning. This was the tune called Hot Flu. Hello and welcome back. In this episode, we're going to be hearing all about the digital divide. And we've an interview for you from a researcher from the University of Cambridge. And we have our usual roundup and we'll have more music from the Old Bones Collective. So this week, we're thinking about the digital divide, digital poverty, people who have no access to the internet or lack the skills to use it. But before we hear from our Cambridge researcher, Dr Gemma Burgess, let's first hear a short clip from a local teacher, Jason Gilman. Do you remember, Melissa, in the last episode, we mentioned in our roundup the Bristol teacher who's fundraising for laptops for his students? Yes, and it's very, it's very useful. I'm pretty sure many, many students and pupils will need it. Well, here he is. He's brand new to teaching and he was so fed up with the situation, he launched a fundraising campaign to buy some laptops for his school. There are so many students, uh, more than what you think, that don't have a laptop at home and therefore they can't access their online lessons that they need to access because they're isolating, and especially now because of COVID and It's just unacceptable. Um, the people are struggling out there. And I, I do see students that are online in my classes. However, there are many that aren't. Uh, and when they come back to the classroom, they're, they're very behind. And it's, if we don't tackle this issue now, then it's just going to get worse and worse, um, unfortunately. So this is what this campaign is all about. It's all about raising money to purchase very simple laptops that can connect to the internet And also they can use for well-being purposes as well, um, as well as access all that important educational material that they're missing out on. That was Jason Gilman, the teacher from Bristol, setting the scene a little. And we thought we should find out more about this. So where better to go than the University of Cambridge, where I spoke to Dr Gemma Burgess, who's been researching the barriers people face getting online and in particular how the pandemic has brought this to a head. Here she is. So Gemma, you were asked to contribute an article to Cambridge University's Beyond the Pandemic series, and you've written about the growing digital divide in this country. And before I ask you about how the pandemic has affected things, perhaps you could just start by giving us an outline on where we are. Are most people plugged into the internet and have a computer of their own at home, or is this still a bit of a myth? It's definitely still a bit of a myth. Uh, I think there is, um, amongst some quarters, the idea that Wi-Fi is a bit like water. We turn the tap on and out it comes. And, and actually, for many people, that's not the reality. And digital exclusion, is, it's quite complicated. It's not the same thing for everybody. For some, for some people, this is not being able to afford a broadband connection. 
For some people, this might be not being able to afford the right kit at home, so not having a laptop. You know, for others, this might be more of an urban-rural divide with poor broadband um, in rural areas. So it's, it's a complicated problem, but it affects millions of people. Um, and it's not experienced the same by everybody. So for some people, it's about connectivity. For some people, it's about kit. For some people, it's about skills and confidence. So can you give us some statistics? I mean, how many people are still not connected to the internet in their homes do we know this? Yes, we do. We, I mean, we have recently good data from the Office of National Statistics on uh, the number of people, um, on maybe the types of people who are not connected. So in, it's around, say, a fifth of the UK population of all ages. It's absolutely not a generational issue. So, for example, in 2018, 8% of people in the UK, which is over 4 million people, were estimated to have zero basic digital skills. So it's, a, it's a huge number of people. So we've got about 8 million people in the UK who don't use the internet. And of that 8 million people, about 90% suffer from other kinds of economic or social disadvantages. And they are most likely to be in the lowest income bracket and or to be disabled with long-standing health conditions. So we, we know this is millions of people. And if we think of digital skills as being not just about the internet, but also about being able to do things when you are connected, then a further 12%, so over 6 million adults, estimated only to have limited abilities online, so missing many of the basic digital skills. And yet, in my life, I couldn't work without the internet, and it, it seems as, as natural and as important as light, heat and food. Yes, but I think, I mean, one of the things that the COVID pandemic has done is shone the light on food poverty in this country, and, you know, that's been in the media a lot. So for many people, even those basics of putting food on the table it, it isn't possible, and unfortunately... For many people, it's a choice between food or broadband, and it's it, it, people are going to choose those basics over an internet connection. And that's really come home for the families who've had to homeschool. So, you know, facing really difficult choices. Many people have access, for example, to a smartphone, but you can't, children can't do their homework assignments on a smartphone. People can't apply for jobs on a smartphone. So, it, it, for many people, this is a really stark choice. And it, it for many people, this is a is a function of poverty um, that, that, that mean that having an affordable home broadband, having the kit that goes with it, is just beyond many people's reach. And tell us a bit about how the pandemic has affected, has affected life for people and why it's become even more of a, of a stark reality that there's a, such a divide between those who can access the internet and those who can't. I mean, I think the pandemic's done two things. One is it sped up the pace of digitisation and, and for those of us that are connected, you know, you and I are able to have this conversation, we're miles apart, I'm in my kitchen, you know, I've got a nice home set up here, there's two of us working in the house, we've got plenty of tech, you know, we're all banking online, we're schooling online, we're shopping online, we talk to the doctor online, uh, you know, everything has become, it, that pace of digitisation through the pandemic has massively increased. But the second part of that is it's really exposed the hardships around poverty. You know, people have lost jobs, people have been on furlough, people have lost incomes, and those who were already poor have been pushed further into poverty. Food prices have gone up, for example. So what we see is a kind of, you know, pins the movement of, you know, everything going online alongside increased hardship caused by the pandemic. And for many people, that squeeze means that homeschooling, working from home is, is, is almost impossible. Yes. So what needs to happen? 
there are lots of people who are working on the ground in a very practical ways to tackle this. So, for example, the Cambridgeshire Digital Partnership is the group of organisations, a housing association and youth partnership, who at the beginning of the pandemic turned their attention from the things they were normally doing with their communities to getting devices out to people, getting people online, helping people get a broadband connection, teaching them how to use it. And they realised this is going on across Cambridge. So they pulled, they've come together and done that in a really coordinated way. And that's an example of something very practical. But this is bigger than that. We need, for starters, we need better broadband. We've got really poor broadband compared to most other developed economies. And we need to see much more about that. And we need to accept that the market won't provide for everybody. If everybody needs a good internet connection, we can't leave it to the market. This has to be some form of subsidy in there for poorer households. And we also have to think it's not just about um, giving people an internet connection. It's about giving people the skills and the confidence and the access to do that. So libraries, community centres, the other places that are not just at home where people would ordinarily be able to access the internet. Um, and also, we need to do more to tackle poverty. Um, we, we, we have to accept that if being online is an absolutely crucial part of life, and it's estimated that within the next 10 years, 90% of all jobs will need digital skills. So we, this is really important for everybody, no matter what job you do. Um, then we, we have to find ways to make sure that the poorest are not excluded from that digital future. And you talked about people, charities on the ground doing things. I mean, they're always the first to respond, aren't they? Because they see the problem. But if we consider that internet access and the skills needed is is as important as food on the table, light and heat, then surely this is a government responsibility, isn't it? Absolutely. I think that's quite right. The, the responsibility should absolutely come top down from national government. And I mean, bits of government have responded. The Department for Education have responded to the pandemic, providing devices to children, for example. But that's not enough. We need a national coordinated response, a digital strategy that sets out what our future pathway to kind of full digital inclusion is going to look like. Now, for example, there's a private members bill going through government at the moment which is about giving all children eligible for free school meals, making sure they have a broadband connection and facilities to access the internet at home. So there are people at national level thinking around what policy might look like. There won't be one solution. Some of this will be about tackling poverty. So, for example, the um, current uplift um, in in benefits of £20 a week is due to come to an end in April. Many families will benefit if that doesn't happen. Um, so there, there will be different strategies to tackle this, but you're quite right. Some of this will be a, a national top-down effort to close the gap between the people who are um, on the wrong side of the digital divide. And who, which, which government department should that be? That's really tricky, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to tackle. Maybe it's time for somebody who can be the, the, the champion um, for, for digital inclusion um, amongst national government and can work across this government silos to give us a coordinated response because the pandemic has really shone a light on what a problem this really is. And tell me about your research. What research are you doing at the moment? Uh, one piece of research we do is with a local housing association, uh, CHS group, who work across the east of England region with multiple partners on a coaching programme. So they provide 20 hours of coaching to people who are furthest from the labour market, giving them help with getting online to manage their money and uh, to get closer to the job market. And we've been their research partner here at the university for the last four years. 
So we talk to the people delivering the programme and the participants who've been through the coaching programme. And as part of that, we really understood the challenges of digital exclusion, what it really means to be on the wrong side of the digital divide and how important that is to be able to manage your money, to be able to manage debt and to be able to get closer to the to the job market. You know, that research has really showed the importance, not just of the coaching, uh, but also of the importance of being able to get online and have the skills to know what to do when you've got there. And, and, and where are you taking it? Where is it going next? So uh, in the new research, we're going to be focusing on looking at trying to understand better the uh, different types of digital exclusion. So who is it experienced by, in what way, and how does it affect different households in different ways? Because it will be quite different for perhaps an elderly household uh, living on their own to somebody who's trying to homeschool their children, for example. So we want a better understanding of what it's like to experience digital exclusion. And we also want to talk to households about how they themselves see potential solutions. We're also working with frontline practitioners, so organisations, people who are working on frontline service provision with vulnerable households, learning from their experience of the pandemic, moving services online as to what did they think the good solutions would be to tackle and to support uh, people who are struggling um, uh, with the digital exclusion. And we want to make a set of policy recommendations at the local, the regional and the national level. What do we need to do? to tackle the digital divide. Thank you so much, Dr Gemma Burgess, for talking to us today and sharing a quarantini. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. So thanks there to Dr Gemma Burgess for telling us all about the digital divide. What do you think, Melissa? Well, I feel it's a very important issue. It's one of the key problems of the coming months. I have many students, even here at UWE, who don't have their own laptop and follow my lectures on their phone, or they have some sort of like Chromebook or have something between a tablet and a laptop, and it's very hard for them to exercise. The university has been putting in place some available rooms for them or access to the library, but what they really need is a laptop of their own. Even if they come back on campus for lessons, there is so much to do now. So can you imagine being over 18, paying a fortune to study? I don't have the proper materials, so I think... I don't know. In my dreams, I hope the government would come up with grants so to make it equal for everybody. You see what I mean? Not every student has got um, the support. And then it makes very cruel differences between the ones who can ask for a laptop for Christmas, for instance, and the ones whose parents will never be able to do that. OK, so now it's time for our weekly roundup. Yes, and we're going to start in, in Bristol, Pommy, obviously like... We do, but obviously this week we've learned that uh, Bristol is going to go into tier three, right? After the lockdown, so it makes up that very, very few places will be able to open again. So I thought maybe we could ask our listener to share with us some of their great tips of, you know, activities or meetup to, to have with their friends while it's getting into winter and we're still only able to meet outdoors. What would be yours, Pommy, or some of your friends? Yes, because we can meet up outdoors with up to six people still, but we can't go into each other's houses or even gardens. So my top tip is get yourself a thermos flask and fill it with hot mulled wine and carry it around with you everywhere. And I think you'll make a lot of friends that way. 
Well, I'd love to hear some of our listeners' good tips as well, because as you know, Pommy, I like warm weather and uh, I'm not, I was very, very happy in Bristol until recently because it was sunny and warmer. But now I, f- I feel like this two weeks are going to be the hardest. So please do email us and send us ideas. You can even be featured on the next episode if you wish. Uh, the quarantine um, podcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Let's let's just think about Bristol then and what's happened recently. After giving birth to her daughter Mabel during the first lockdown in March, a Bristol poet, Joanna Bennett, wrote a poem called Tiny Lungs. And then she wrote a few more. And her five-year-old son, Arthur, illustrated them because he was really, really into drawing at the time. And Joanna, who had already had 10 miscarriages, 10, said all of the poems are the inhalations and exhalations of the good times and the bad times and reflections that she's had during lockdown. I understood, she says, I understood that drawing was Arthur's thing and was helping him get through lockdown and writing was mine. So I asked him if he wanted to help me with my book. All the poems are quite vulnerable and they allow people to be vulnerable. So I'm hoping, she says, that the book will bring comfort to people. Her previous book, Follow the Fishes, was turned into a film and narrated by actor Rupert Everett. Some other good news, Pommy. Uh, Elsewhere in the UK, some giant pelicans, you know my love for animals. So giant pelicans could make a return in the country. You know, it's one of the planet's largest birds and their enormous Dalmatians pelicans have got wingspan of almost 12 feet. It has become one of the latest targets for rewilding advocates. Uh, conservationists are already restoring the birds' wetland habitat in Istanglia, for instance. According to the environmentalist and author Benedict MacDonald, there are several sites there in Istanglia where the species could be reintroduced. Just to remind you, uh, the Dalmatian pelican was common in the UK until about 2,000 years ago. So don't feel bad if you haven't seen any. But it was wiped out at the time by hunting and habitat loss. And now there were and could be again a greatest living bird in the country, according to that um, researcher. So I felt it was great news. I can't believe that the weather is good enough for pelicans. Don't they live in tropical climates? Well, it's just like palm trees. I always wonder how so many palm trees can be happy in London, you know, but they manage... Very exciting. And moving further west, we go to the USA, where I found out about the New Digs initiative. This was dreamt up by the CEO of a Texan video company who spent the first lockdown, lucky him, in a log cabin in the Rockies rather than commuting through the smoky traffic in Dallas. He decided after that experience to let four employees spend a month working from an Airbnb of their choice. And the aim was to rejuvenate the workers, reduce their stress levels and the anxiety caused by the pandemic. And it worked particularly well for some of them. Bit of a shame, Melissa, if you're a freelancer because you haven't got a boss who thinks, you know, you need to spend a month in an Airbnb and would pay for you. What do you think? I would definitely take that option. I've been dying to go to Sicily for months and it's the first time in my life that I'm not going to Italy in more than 12 months, probably since I've been 20 or 19, something like that. So, well, someone send me a boss offering that opportunity. (laughs) Maybe you should write to this bloke. (laughs) 
Yeah. Another place where I could want to go is Africa. You know, I've, I've been a correspondent there for a while. And one of the good news of the week is coming from there. A network of 13 African countries has now joined forces with global researchers to launch the largest clinical trial of potential COVID-19 treatments on the continent. It's called the Anticov study. And it involves like institute, the Institute of Tropi Tropical Medicine from Antwerp, other international research institutions, and it aims at identifying treatments to treat mild and moderate cases of COVID-19 quite early. These treatments could prevent spikes in hospitalizations that could overwhelm fragile and already overburdened health system in Africa. Dr. John Kengesatsong, director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said there is a need for large clinical trials in Africa for COVID-19 to answer research questions that are specific to the African context. So the study will test um, the efficiency of treatment in 2,000 to 3,000 mild to moderate patients in countries um, like Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Equatorial Guinea, Ethiopia, Ghana, Guinea, Kenya, Mali, Mozambique, Sudan and Uganda. Wow. All those countries. Fantastic. That's a great idea, isn't it? And what they need will be completely unique to those countries. Yes, and if they need a freelance reporter uh, to take some photos, yeah. <laughs> they can send me an invitation. So, you know, at the beginning of this roundup, you invited our listeners to write in and tell us how they are managing to meet up with friends in the cold. Absolutely. I would love to know more. Well, I found out that in Canada, quite a lot of teachers have been taking their school classes outside. And this is Canada. This is not Britain. This is really cold Canada. They've been doing it in Quebec. They've been doing it in the Rockies. And I found out about one place that is teaching her band to play their music out in the cold. So these are people who who blow musical instruments. So I suppose they they play clarinets and saxophones and things. And they're not allowed to do it inside, obviously. So she takes them out and she's allowed to take them out for up to 25 minutes at the moment. I suppose it will get less and less as it gets colder and colder. And she says it's just been fantastic because they can play together, they're outside and it's about being together, isn't it? Doing something that makes makes them feel like they're part of a community. Yeah, I just think it would be much easier in South Africa or somewhere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but well done, people. I need to get used to it. I need to get used to it. So bring on your tips. They're hardy people in Canada, aren't they? I guess you need to do something that's high level activity, right? If you're into the music, if it's very intense or if you're moving a lot, I'll, even I will be able to do that at some point. OK, I'll, I'll hold you to that, Melissa. Well, let's talk about it in April, will we? <laughs> All right. So to finish off, what do we have? Well, I wanted to pick a song uh, from our very special band, the Old Bones Collective, because I'm so grateful for them having been with us all the time, listening to the podcast and sharing that song for opening music, Hot Flu. And I picked um, a warmer sort of jazzy theme, other instrumental piece of them that's called Carlos, a very Spanish name that takes us on imaginary travel.
so. That's it for the quarantine this week. We'll be back next time, just before the end of the year, with a new cocktail of ideas, music and positive news for you all. And a very special bonus. In the meantime, we'd really love to hear from you and this time send us tips or great experiences you have despite the, the tier tree or lockdown, despite the calls. Get a hold of us by emailing us, for instance, at thequarantinepodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This episode was hosted by me, Melissa Shimam. And was hosted and produced by me, Pomi Harmer. Thank you, Pomi, and thank you all for listening. And stay safe.